Good Reflections, Deepening a Christian Spirituality for Today. In this, the second week of the Moot Lent course, Vanessa Elson explores the theme of life in the spirit. We've got questions around why, does it, why is it hard? Um, we've got questions about um, this idea of exclusivity and inclusivity. Is this positive? Is it negative? Is it an invitation? Or is it, um, is it just an observation of how things are? And um, that question around why is it few and is it obvious or if it's obvious? Um, so as with a lot of these statements, there's, um, it's quite cryptic really, isn't it? <laughs> um, and I, I have to say that I'm going to say hands up in that I've, I've been a bit guilty of, yeah, um, I've given you a verse completely out of context, and I've asked you to think about it in relationship to your own lives, which is in some ways a little bit, um, well, it's not always good practice. <laughs> um, because um, I guess what I've kind of devoided that text of the context. So what I will say is that for many biblical scholars that have kind of looked at this, they would say that Jesus was addressing a very specific context. So he was talking to the nation of Israel and that when he used the word destruction, he was actually talking a bit like an Old Testament prophet. He was saying, actually, there's a real destruction that's coming and you've got a choice to make. And so he was, what he was saying is kind of some of the assumptions that you have about yourselves, about your privileged relationship to God, are going to be shattered. And if you don't kind of change direction, there is some bad stuff that's going to happen. And, I mean, after Jesus died in AD 70, um, the whole of Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. The armies of Rome surrounded it. And in a sense, the nation of Israel was um, in a sense, um, destroyed in terms of geographical, physical entity. It was literally, destruction did actually come. So you could say that Jesus was speaking those words perhaps with a very specific context and agenda in mind. However, the reason I took that is that I sort of think, okay, so even if Jesus was speaking it with that context in mind, does it relate to us now? And if it does, how? And I guess I'm thinking about now, us as a society, where we're, where we're at, do we face a potential destruction? Are there ways in which we may be waking up to the reality of some of the choices we've made about how we live, how we relate to ourselves, others, and the planet we live on? Are we avoiding what's coming? Um, I was listening to Newsnight last night. And I was thinking how hard it is for us to change our economic and social habits. This economist was saying, basically, we need a totally new economic settlement which goes beyond left and right ways of thinking. A whole new relationship he was talking about between capital and labour. One which restores the importance of relationships to economy and society. And the other one was going, yeah, but how do we get there from where we are? And it just made me think, Actually, when you're on, when a lot of you are on a certain trajectory, it's incredibly difficult to change that trajectory. And in some ways, I sort of think that's the position that we're in. 
right now as a society. But also, I think, as individuals, can we see any of this in micro microcosm? Is there an individual application? So are there ways in which we, I guess, individually do things that might lead to more negative rather than more positive results? And I have to say, I do think, a bit like I said last week, we are all in relationship with others, so we're not just isolated little individuals. You know, I think that we are caught up in bigger processes and forces that are more than just us. But still, in a way, the only place we can, I can start is with me. <laughs> that, that is the only place to start, not necessarily the place to finish. So I guess that's my kind of little justification for giving you that verse and asking you to think about it in relationship to you. Um, I can't answer all these questions, I think, but I, I really believe in asking questions, because I think it's only by asking questions that you kind of stir things up and actually sometimes reach the next place. I think some of the readings I gave you um, raised some issues for me, and, and one of those is I think that and I think you said it, that it's, it's sometimes the things that are difficult are the areas of potential growth. And a wound um, won't be healed if we deny it's there. It will fester, become infected, and the infection may kill us where the original wound would not if given attention. So sometimes we do have to face the thing that we don't want to face. And in Scott Peck, he says that the kind of things that help us do that are the disciplines, and they help us to actually face the thing that we don't want to look at. But that's what we have to do if the wound's going to get healed. The wound doesn't get healed by ignoring it and pretending it's not there. I think that the easy road is our natural inclination to keep things the way they are that it's easier to cling to old maps and old ways of doing things. Because a bit like that economist, old habits die hard. And in the, in the um, reading from Tacey, he, he, talks, he sort of gives, I guess, an essay that his student wrote. And she talks about her kind of journey. And she, I guess it's sort of almost like a kind of an awakening where she's, she talked about her childhood, she grew up in a religious background, but as a young person she sort of rejected all that and she wanted to explore things for herself. But in a funny way she's sort of come back to thinking again about um, what might, is there anything valid in my original childhood experience? But she talks about the difficulty of trying to engage with this possible, she calls it, you know, sacred other, something else that might be bigger than me and how actually difficult that is. And she writes, um, actually Tacey says, it's easier to let anger, hurt, woundedness, inadequacy and misunderstanding determine our relationship to the sacred rather than engage in study and discernment. I sort of think we're caught. One of the reasons why this is so difficult is, is, is we're kind of caught between two places. 
we're a bit, we're at a difficult moment because we're stuck. And this is where his words, he says, we're stuck between a secular system we've outgrown and a religious system we cannot fully embrace. And really that's what that little chapter talks about, that, that her, this experience. That this, she struggles with this position that she's in. She says that the secular actually doesn't meet um, really who I think I am, but also there's this religious background that I don't really understand and I, um, I feel quite disconnected from. And I think that because we're in this place, in the sense where we're not on either path, <laughs> we're not fully in the secular and we're not fully in the religious, we're kind of stuck. So the only way through that is each of us has to engage in a process of discernment. And that discernment is the process by which we have to come to see what has true value and meaning. What is really essential and important and what is not. In some ways we have to engage with some of the traditions that we might have rejected and say, well actually, was there anything in this or is there nothing there? At Dallas Willard, he talks about um, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. And he, say, he says that we really need clarity about the real worth or value of what we have to gain or we can't sustain the journey. That that discernment is the condition of soul that we need to embark on a path of transformation. And most of us who grew up in a religious environment have to engage in this process of discernment. We have to find out what is of real worth and value in the religion that we grew up in, or maybe in another, because it's not always very obvious. Because the tradition that we knew kind of buried and well and truly hidden it. And often that process means that we first of all have to reject and lose it in order to find a faith of meaning and relevance. We have to engage in a kind of loss and then a finding. But I think we do have to engage in the second half of the cycle, which is finding what is of true value. Because if we don't do that, if we don't find what is of true value and meaning, we will just stay as adolescents. We'll be forever cynical and tearing down in our anger and rage. And we'll never be able to commit to a path of reconstruction, of making a positive contribution of reaching spiritual maturity, we have to become part of the answer, not just rage at the problem. So for me, I guess what I'm saying is I think that small gate is something about a conscious and radical choice that only comes after a, a spiritual awakening, a discerning of what has real and lasting value, what is truly important, what really connects for our lives today. I guess the easy road is not to engage, it's not to ask the question, and it's not to enter into that dialogue and that process of discernment. And again, in that extract, Tacey says, it is easy just not to engage, but the trouble is it's without satisfaction. And that word satisfaction kind of really registered with me. Um, 
I've spent many years, perhaps slightly unusually, reading the Bible. And uh, for some reason, the strange, peculiar world of the Bible, it fascinates me. And it has actually always spoken to me in quite a profound way. And when I was reflecting on this, I thought, right, there's something I think that one of the reasons why I am fascinated by it is I think it has something to say to this situation that we're in. Okay. So I'm now going to give you what I think is one of the Bible's central messages, which is this. It's that we were made to be filled and to be satisfied. We were not made in vain. We were not made to be frustrated. But we were made with a potential that's meant to be completed. Life has a habit of frustrating but that was not how it was originally intended. The continual frustrating of our original purpose can either drive us to despair, depression and apathy, we kind of give up, or we take things into our own hands and we're driven to grabbing and getting as much as we can for ourselves. And we sort of cut off from our deepest desires and longings and we can't bear to listen to them because we don't see how they can be met. So the Bible speaks a word of hope here many, many times, and I've just picked one, which is from Isaiah 58, verse 11, and it says, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire or needs in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And Basically, you could say the Bible is many versions of one story, which is of God wanting to meet people in their deepest and truest needs, and of people going elsewhere to get their needs met. So what I'm saying, I guess my little paradigm, is that the whole point of existence is a matching of a real need and desire with what can meet that need and desire. Otherwise, we're in a game of futility and despair. We're destined to the hamster wheel where we keep on running and we never get anywhere. Um, but I think, well, I'm, I'm saying it's what the Bible says, but other things say as well. I think there's a big no to that, that the end goal is actually real, deep, and lasting satisfaction. That we were made to be filled and to fill in our turn continual m movement of freely receiving and giving that way of relating we call love that our, this is our destiny and I'm going to quote again this is from the New Testament from Ephesians which is to know the love that surpasses knowledge and to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God and that's an incredible fullness so, so this is from Ephesians and it's our destiny is this to know the love that surpasses knowledge, to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I've just put my own paraphrase of that, is that's an incredible fullness that we can never exhaust and never get to the end of. And I think we need that sense of hope. We need a sense of where we're headed if we're going to be able to engage with a kind of journey. Because if, if the road goes nowhere, let's not bother, because there's no point. So, um, so the first step, well, I guess it's that sense of hope, but then I think we have to unmask the dissatisfaction and we have to um, sing along with Mick Jagger 
but I'm not going to do that for you. You have to look it up on YouTube. <laughs> but I really think we do. I think we have to get in touch with a real need and longing. We have to not be satisfied with what does not really satisfy. And we have to not pretend we're full when we're still hungry and thirsty. Julie, on Sunday, she gave this sort of little homily and she said, she quoted a Sufi mystic in the 14th century. And this mystic is a little poem. And the poem is, first, the fish needs to say, something ain't right about this camel ride and I'm feeling so damn thirsty. But that connects with, again, because I read the Bible, so I can keep talking about the Bible, because I guess for me it's a, a key reference point. There's so many metaphors of thirst and hunger in the Bible, in the Psalms. My soul thirsts for God. My body, physically, my body yearns for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Who am I? Where am I? What's going on here? Where do I belong? And we come back to discerning what is real food and drink? What is it that really fills us? What truly satisfies? And um, the vital missing element in our modern world is really that of the spirit. Because we threw it all out and we rejected religion as having any meaning or relevance for our lives. And I think part of the reason why we threw it out is that our images of religion are mainly the opposite of a deeply satisfying life, if we're honest. We don't have images of what a deeply satisfying life really looks like. And that's probably why the church has been emptying. You know, I, I have to speak from the faith tradition of Christianity because that's the one I've lived inside. But we have lost so much. I'm talking about Christians. We've lost so much. I think the ways of life are no longer easily accessible. You know, what on earth is that narrow road that Jesus is speaking about? Now, I grew up with Christianity and I feel like I'm only now just beginning to enter and experience some of what should have been basic many years before because the sort of teaching and practice weren't there. Um, so, here we are. <laughs> we're stuck between secular and religious. And the result is that we're spiritually impoverished. And we don't know where to go to get our needs met. And we've also, I think, become largely ignorant of and unaware of the spiritual dimension of life. For all our education and learning, this is something we have very little understanding of. How do you define the word spirit? And what is life in the spirit? So, sorry, I'm talking a bit long. I will stop soon. I think there's a myth that's dogged us, and it's why I've called to tonight's talk Life in the Body and Life in the Spirit. Because I think there's a myth that we need to debunk, and that is that... Life in the spirit and life in the body are opposites that cannot be reconciled. That the spiritual life is incompatible with a vigorous and enjoyable life in the body. That spiritual life is for the very old and the very dead. So, and, and here, what I'm, basically I've given you a chapter again. I've just given you one chapter this week. <laughs> You'll be glad to know. But it's really helpful, I think, in debunking some of the myths and explaining what is, what is a good relationship between body and spirit. Because to be frankly, I don't think we've been given a very good paradigm or understanding of that. But what this chapter basically says is that the body was actually made for a life in the spirit. And that life in the spirit is actually the body's fulfillment. That to live a full life in the body, you actually need a life in the spirit. That that's what we were somehow made for.
become a human being, to fulfill your potential is to be both. It's to be fully in the body, but also somehow fully in the spirit. Thank you for listening to this Moot Reflection. For more information on our events, resources and community, please go to www.moot.uk.net.